this morning we're going to look at a, a, one of the Old Testament prophets at what I've described as being perhaps the most scandalous story of the Old Testament. And uh, to get there, I want to, to tell it about a time when I felt uh, somewhat in the, in the shoes of this prophet. Several years ago, I was, um, as I was working as an associate pastor at a church and I was going to seminary, I also uh, taught guitar lessons to first and second year guitar students at the conservatory, musical conservatory in Clarksville, Tennessee. And so every day I would go to the conservatory, I'd teach guitar lessons with my guitar, and then I would, I would come home. Well, on this one particular day, I got a message from Haley. Most days I'd come home and she would have been home with with Brindley for a couple of hours and you know she would have done some cleaning and you know and this isn't like always the way it was but typically like dinner was on the table and it was healthy and nutritious and all of that kind of stuff and that was just sort of our normal pattern that we fell into um, on this one particular day I got a text message from Haley that said don't come straight home go to Walmart we need diapers wipes, and a rotisserie chicken. <laughs> Some of you who've maybe only been married a short time, I'll just tell you, that's code for when you get home, things aren't going well. When you hear a message, we need diapers, wipes, and a rotisserie chicken. Don't expect there to be a healthy dinner on the table. You're eating a rotisserie chicken. And so as soon as lessons were done, I got in my car and I drove to Walmart. At this time in my life, I was driving a 1978 Plymouth Trail Duster, which is like a Dodge Ram Charger, except it doesn't have a roof. Um, and it was springtime and it was beautiful out, so I was like, okay, that's fine. The problem is, is I wasn't going to leave my guitar that I had paid a couple hundred dollars for in the back end of my car and just trust that no one was going to take it. And so I took my guitar and I went and grabbed a buggy, uh, you know, a shopping cart, depending on what part of the country you're from, and I, I put my guitar in that little undercarriage section of the shopping cart and I went into Walmart. On my way into Walmart, I saw a man named Bob Coates, who was a greeter at Walmart. He went to our church. He was about 75 years old and was the most vivacious, friendly Walmart employee there had ever been. I mean, just wonderful. In fact, he, at 75 years old, he went on every single youth trip we took. And, and he was like, no, let's not go to bed yet. Let's order pizza, that kind of, that kind of, kind of guy. And so when I walked into Walmart, he was like, Chip, how are you? And he, he was from New York, and I won't even try to do his accent because... I can't come even close. But he's like, Chip, how are you? It's so good to see you. And he's just, you know, he's like talking. And I'm like, great, Bob, how are you? And we talked for a little while. And I, I tell him I'm here to get, you know, a few things. And I'm, I'm kind of in a hurry because Haley's at home. And he's like, oh, okay. I said, I'm, you know, I'm here to get diapers and wipes and rotisserie chicken. And he's like, a message received. I understand the sort of, you know, hurry that you're in. And he was like, might I recommend one of these little um, bouquets of flowers right here by the entrance. And I was like, oh, Bob, you're wise. You are a wise man. So I grab the flowers and I get the, the diapers and the wipes and the rotisserie chicken and I go through the express line. As I'm coming through the express line, I put my stuff up on the little, on the little platform there. They scan it, I pay, and I'm on my way out and I see that Bob isn't there anymore, that Bob has been replaced by someone that I've never seen before. And he asked me a question that I gave him a correct but also the wrong answer to. He said, did you forget to pay for that? Pointing to my guitar in the little undercarriage of the buggy. And I gave a right answer. I said, no, I didn't forget to pay for it. Meaning, I didn't buy this here. This was mine already. But I said, I didn't forget to pay for it. And he apparently had been watching me and knew that I did not put it up on the, on the little checkout stand. And so he said, well, would you mind if I see your receipt? No, I don't mind if you see my receipt. I hand him the receipt. He looks. He's like, you bought four things. 
there's five things in your buggy. And he said, well, sir, I think you did forget to pay for that guitar. And I said, oh, no, 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 this is my guitar. And he said, oh, well, let me just see the little sticker that, that they put on it when you came in. And then I realized Bob didn't put a sticker on it when it came in, when I came in. And so I was like, well, I didn't, I didn't get a sticker. I guess that, that when I came in, the, the guy didn't notice the guitar. And he said, well, that's, that's highly unlikely, sir. I mean, we, we're trained to notice things like that when people come in. And so I was at sort of a crossroads. I was like, well, you know, I didn't want to get Bob in trouble because he, you know, failed to do something. And at the same time, I, I needed to leave with my guitar and I needed to leave quickly. And I said, I'm sorry, this is this probably just some sort of misunderstanding. I, I'm sorry, I, but this is, this is my guitar. I bought it in. You're, you're just going to have to trust me. He said, sir, I would love to trust you, but we sell guitars here at Walmart. And so I don't know enough about guitars to know if that's your guitar or our guitar. And so his suggestion was that I was going to have to go back and buy my guitar from Walmart. And I said, oh, no, that's just, that's not acceptable. I can't do that. I, I need to go, though. I need to, to go. And then I made a mistake, and I asked, um, and this is almost always a mistake at, at Walmart, and I said, I, I guess I need to see a manager. By the time this story was resolved, that rotisserie chicken was cold and old. Um, but I, I asked to see a manager, and, and then eventually things worked out. But I had a, had a decision to make. At a certain point, I had a decision to make. Am I going to pay for a guitar that I already own. This morning, we're going to look at a story in the Old Testament in the book of Hosea. And the book of Hosea is a, is a prophet. It's a book of prophecy. And if you want to turn, we're going to put the words on the screen. If you want to turn there, it's after Psalms, before Malachi. If you hit Isaiah, keep going. Um, it's, it is a book of prophecy. And in, in this book, um, we deal with a, a prophet who faced a similar decision where what was his, what was his by every right he had to then pay for. And we're going to look at that story today, and we're going to look at it in particular in the context of what I think is perhaps the most important lesson of all of Scripture, one of the most important things. And in fact, it's a lesson that if we practice this the way Scripture teaches us to, if we practice this discipline, because it is a discipline, if we practice it the way Hosea does, if we practice it the way that God instructs him to practice it and the way that he instructs us to practice it, it will revolutionize all of our relationships. Our relationships will move so much more smoothly if we can learn to forgive and to be reconciled the way Hosea does. Because this book is a, it is, it's really, even though there's going to be a lot of things in here that are really dark and very brooding, there's also a beautiful love story in the middle of this story of Hosea. And I want to look at that today. Hosea, a little bit of, um, a little bit of what we see in Hosea, a little bit of background, is that Hosea is sometimes called a deathbed prophet because he was the last prophet to prophesy in Israel before the Assyrian army came through and wiped it off the face of the map. So he was called the deathbed prophet for that reason, and he's dealing with, in the northern part of Israel, the nation, the divided nation called Israel, he is dealing with a series of kings that are, were bloody, that were just horrible, vile human beings. Horribly bloody, but at the same time as the kings and much of the ruling class was practicing all kinds of wickedness. In fact, there are stories even in that in this time there were priests who would make declarations to make themselves wealthy. Some of them would even go as far as to commit murder. Like that's, that's the level of uh, that this Israel had fallen at this point. There was debauchery everywhere, but at the same time, as morally they were bankrupt, there were a lot of ways in which life for them was good. You see, their moral bankruptcy hadn't hit their pocketbook yet. 
So they thought that things are still going well because we've got money, we've got finances, we've got authority and power in our kingdom. And so there was a certain way of thinking that they thought things are going fine. And so then here comes Hosea, and Hosea is preaching a message of repentance and judgment and of impending doom. And they're looking around saying, I don't see any doom anywhere. I don't see any destruction laying ahead for us anywhere. And so it's almost as if Hosea is proclaiming this message passionately, violently, vehemently, declaring a message of repentance, and they're just kind of like patting him on the head, okay, that's nice, dear, and not paying any attention to what he's saying. And, and sometimes when this would happen to the prophets in Israel, God would do something special. In fact, in, as Old Testament call, scholars call it, it's called a speech act, where it isn't enough that the prophet speaks the truth of God, but he will then act out the truth of God. We see it when Isaiah walked around Israel naked for three years, when, when Ezekiel um, laid on his side next to a, a, a model of Jerusalem saying, this is what it's going to be like when, when, we, are, when we are surrounded, when the nations are coming for us. It was or when Ezekiel, he, he had a couple of them, when he cooked his food over a pile of feces and said, this is what it's going to look like when the invading army comes to destroy Jerusalem. God would do this. He would push the prophets to speech act. And so he does that with Hosea. And the way he does it in Hosea chapter 1, at the very beginning, Hosea chapter 1, starting at verse 2, he says, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, there are certain things that we learn about our spouses going into, like, like after we've been married for a while. You know, we learn like they snore or they drool in their sleep or, or whatever. They have some bad habits. Hopefully none of you found this out about your spouse. But Hosea goes into this relationship with Gomer knowing the sort of woman that he is marrying. Now, there are a couple of different opinions on whether she was already practicing prostitution or not. A lot of scholars say that she wasn't because her name, Gomer, it means perfection. It is an expression of, of an outside, of an external beauty, where when you would look at her from the outside, you'd think this woman has it all together, that she is beautiful and perfect. But Hosea knew that even though her exterior was beautiful and perfect, that he knew that inside of her, that his future held a woman who was going to cheat, who was going to abuse who was going to treat him badly. He knew it going in. And he knew that this was going to be, that his relationship with his wife was going to be used to spread God's, to spread God's message of repentance and of reconciliation to his people. And so he pursued her. He, he married her. And she conceived and bore a son. And then verses 4 and 5, we find out about the son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So Jezreel, it's, there's, it's difficult to even come up with a modern comparison. Um, the name Israel, where the nation got its name, Israel means prince of God, or prince of God, where Jezreel means scattered by God or sown by God. And so the naming of his son sends a message that these princes of God are going to be scattered by God. And so that, it conveys a certain message that way, but also Jezreel held a historical significance in that it was the site where a lot of really horrible, bloody things happened. One of the most famous Old Testament stories is the story of uh, Queen Jezebel being thrown out of a window by her servants and then uh, a soldier running over her with his chariot and the dogs eating her body. 
That happened in Jezreel. It was done by Jehu, the man who's mentioned in this verse. In Jezreel, Jehu gathered up not the princes of Israel, but gathered up the heads only of the princes of Israel and piled them up into a sack outside of the body. It was the place where he killed the king of Israel with an arrow to his back. It was a site where horrible, bloody things had happened. It would be like naming one of us naming our children Auschwitz or ISIS or maybe Vietnam. I mean, it was like it held a, a significance that was very meaningful to the people of Israel that he would name his son that. And so he says, you're going to name your son this because I'm going to take this ruling family that has set up their kingdom, that has established themselves around things that happened in Jezreel, and I'm going to scatter them. But he's not done with the naming of his children. He goes on. And in verse 6, he said, She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy. Or uh, your translation may say Lo Ruhana. And it says, I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or horsemen. And so what he's saying here is he's saying, listen, you people in the north, you have, your bread and butter has been violence. It has been violence. Ever since Jehu took the throne from Ahab's family, ever since then, you have made your stock and trade violence, and your judgment is coming partially because of the violence that you have committed. And I'm going to save Judah but I'm not going to save them through violence. I'm going to save them by, by my goodwill. I'm going to save them through miraculous ways, but you, you're going to die by violence. You see, we look at, and probably the people in Israel had the same idea. They looked at Ahab and the sort of king that he was and said, well, it's only right that his life was taken by violence. It's only right that his family was delivered or his family was destroyed by violence. But God doesn't take that God doesn't say that. God says, you should have trusted in me to deliver you from this evil king. You should have had faith in me, but instead of having faith in me, you took justice into your own hands and you brought blood onto yourselves and that's going to be revisited on you and you will not have mercy. And then the last name of, of Hosea's child in verse 8, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son and the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. And we can see in this that there's, there's a progression to the naming of his children. That at first it's just that I'm going to visit, I'm going to revisit the bloodshed that you have placed onto the past royal family. I'm going to revisit that on your royals. But not only am I going to revisit that on your royals, but I'm going to have no mercy on any of you people. And then lastly, I'm going to look at you, I'm going to say, you're not even my people anymore. And at that point, it's almost as if God's washing his hands of Israel. And he says, I am done with you. And then... Then something happens in, in the text. Hosea begins to make this, these published uh, statements against Israel. He begins to say these things, these declarations against Israel, and he does something. And he does something that is very interesting in that he uses the situation that he faces with his wife of her being unfaithful to him, that his wife is unfaithful to him, and rather than, because here's, here's how we are and how people sort of always have been, if, if one of us faced some sort of trial, some sort of tribulation inside of our families, we don't tell anybody. Like that's, we just, we keep that, that we've taught our kids that there are certain things that they don't talk about outside of the house. We call those home words. And so if we talk about, you know, private parts or private business that happens in the bathroom, that's a home word, right? We, we tell them home words, right? And we have that in our culture. We, we have some things that we just keep very personal. Hosea doesn't. He says, my wife's unfaithful to me. My wife is out there doing all kinds of things. And you people, you know it. You know she is. You see her. You see her in the marketplace. You see her on the street corners. You see what she's doing. You know what she's up to. 
You see it. And here's the thing is that you're judging her for what she's doing, but you are even worse because she's unfaithful to me and you're unfaithful to your God. He says, look at my life. Look at the shambles that my marriage is in. And that is what the marriage of Israel and the Most High God is like right now because of what you're doing. And so he uses this. He uses his horrible situation as almost like a qualification to be a prophet. And so he puts it out there. And he says, this is what I'm facing. And as you read, if you read the declarations he makes against Israel, it is, it is dark. It is passionate. It is heart-wrenching, the things, the way, especially when you think that the things that he's saying about Israel, he's quite possibly seeing in his own wife. He isn't blind to what's going on with his wife. He knows. He knows what's happening with her. He knows what's happening with the nation, and he has the boldness to say it. And he's so, the way he speaks is so passionate. It's, it's hard to, without reading through all of it, to convey it. But uh, have you seen, do you remember that movie, um, The Christmas Story? The Christmas Story, you know, the you'll shoot your eye out, BB gun, Christmas. Yeah, okay, you know Christmas Story. Well, there's this one scene in the Christmas Story where the father um, has won a major award. You remember the lamp? Yeah, and he puts it in the front window, and it somehow breaks. And then the father, he takes it, he tries to put the lamp back together, and he can't, and it's falling apart, and everybody, his whole family's looking at him, trying to put this lamp back together, and he's failing miserably, and he is angry. Like, and you can see the actor that played the part, you just see him, and you just see, like, his temperature is rising, and he looks at his family, and you remember what he says? He says, not a finger, which is not a word at all, right? He says, not a finger, he, he's so angry that he can barely find words. That's the sort of anger that Hosea speaks with. He can barely even put words, sentences together to express the frustration and the heartache that he is dealing with. But he does. He puts it out there and he says, this is what I'm facing. And at a certain point during this time of proclamation of the truth to God's people, his wife leaves. She leaves and she abandons her family completely. Completely to the point that Hosea doesn't know where she is, doesn't know where, what she's doing. Like he, She's left him completely. And some point during the point of, uh, of their separation, she sells herself and she, re she falls on hard times to the point that she reaches a point to where she is placed onto uh, an auction block to be sold as a slave, which was a pretty common practice in those days that if you fell into debt, fell into too much debt, that you would sell yourself into slavery to be taken out of debt. And so God knows where she is. God knows the situation she's going through. And he sends Hosea a message. And the message that he sends to him is, is to go and to find her and to love her again. And he does. And it's, it's amazing that he does. Because that is, it really flies in the face of everything that we have about ourselves. Because it is sort of our natural disposition that when someone hurts us, we want to hurt them back. In fact, it would satisfy something very base and carnal in, in us if God had told Hosea, go and find her and mock her. Go and find her and declare my judgment on her. Like that, say, I, that makes sense to us. That makes sense that God would, be, would allow Hosea to be vengeful. But he doesn't. He says, go and find her and love her. And that's, 
That's what Hosea does. And, and as I was standing there in the Walmart in Clarksville, Tennessee, and I'm looking at this man who isn't Bob, and he's telling me that I'm going to have to go and pay for the guitar, I, I'm doing the math. Right? Like, I'm doing the math. I'm like, okay, how much is the guitar here? And he says, I don't know, about 30 or $40. And I'm like, okay. So I'm going to pay 30 or $40 for my guitar. My guitar cost a couple hundred dollars. I'm like, okay. I know that the value that I have in my guitar is worth enough to pay. I'm like, okay, I can do that. I'll do it. Is it worth 30 or 40 bucks for me to not get Bob in trouble with his boss? And, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, I, I'm just at the point to where I say, okay, I'm going to do it. And the reason I wanted to do it was not only that I knew the value of this guitar, but I knew this guitar. I knew it. It's not this guitar that I play on Sunday morning. It's another guitar, but I know that guitar. I understand. I know the scratches that are on it. Like, I know all those scratches. I know how they got there. I know, I even know, I remember who dropped the guitar the first time it got dropped and who scratched it, right? I know that. I know every sort of sour note. I know exactly where to put my fingers to avoid them. I, I knew that guitar. It was mine. And because it was mine, I was willing to pay the price to get it back. Hosea looked at his wife. And he said, she is mine. He knew her completely. He knew, he knew her laugh. He knew the way she did her eyebrows when she was angry. He knew how her hair smelled when she slept. He knew this woman, and he loved her. God commanded him to love her. And in order to show his love for her, he was willing to pay whatever the price to get her back. He was willing to pay that price. And the thing is, for us, for us today, this action can seem like a stumbling block. But this isn't even the greatest stumbling block of Scripture. The greatest stumbling block of Scripture is to think that, not that Hosea's wife was on an auction block, but that, that humanity was on an auction block. That because of our sinfulness, because of our wickedness, because of all of the things that have been described in Scripture, that we were slaves to sin and even though God knew us, even though by every right He owned us, even though we were always meant to be His, we sold ourselves away from the God that loved us to sin that does not care about us at all. We sold ourselves into a state of slavery, and God said, I will pay the price for you. Even though I shouldn't have to, even though you belong to me, I will pay the price for you. And that price was dear. Because he paid that price with the cost of Jesus' blood. And that's a stumbling block for a lot of people because it doesn't make sense. Because here's the way our world works. Here's the way our world works. Our world works like this. That we look at somebody that we're in a relationship with and we remember the times that we've been wronged. We remember them. We look at, we look at our situation. We look at maybe our spouses. We look at our friends. We look at family members. And we say, she cheated on me. She cheated on me. You know, did you know that? Oh, people love to tell that story. She cheated. Did, did you know that she cheated on me? And we say that like, that gives me the right to lord that over her head for the rest of her life. It gives me the right to be in judgment of her forever. He lied about me. He, oh, he, he's a liar. He lied about me. And so because he lied about me, I don't, have to, I don't have to be friends with him. I don't have to talk to him. I don't have to be in a relationship with him because he lied about me. She hurt me. Don't, you don't know about how she hurt me. You don't know how, how she hurt me, how he swore at me, how he defamed my character, how she robbed me, how he sinned against me. You don't understand all the ways that this person has hurt me. I have a right to be bitter. I have a right to be angry. I have a right to do it, and you can't take it from me. But you can't be that way and follow after God. You can't hold that kind of bitterness 
and say, I pursue the Prince of Peace. You can't do it both ways. So take your bitterness, keep your bitterness, keep your judgment, keep your righteous anger if you want to, but you can't serve the living, loving God at the same time. Because he says, as much as my, he is righteous, as much as he is righteous, as much as he is just, as much as he is holy, he says, my grace is greater. My grace is greater. My grace is sufficient to wash away all your sins. Even though it cost him dearly, even though he shouldn't have had to pay that price, he was willing to pay it. And so for us, as we are in relationships, as we are dealing with one another, whether it be in a marriage or a friendship or a family or a church relationship or a neighbor next door that you don't like the way they cut their grass and they knocked over your sprinkler head and it's been 10 years but you can't let it go. I don't know what all your situations are, but I do know this. I know that you have a choice that you can be bitter or you can be forgiving, but you can't be both. You can't be both. And here's the thing. We're starting this series on forgiveness and normally the way a series works is I start with the easiest step and it's sort of like a baby step after a baby step after a baby step. This isn't. This is the reverse. I'm starting with the hardest part. Because the hardest thing to do if you want to be a person who forgives, if you want to be able to truly forgive someone, is to let go of the hurt. It's to let go of the pain that they've caused you. To let go of the bitterness that has resulted from it. To let that go is very difficult. It was, must have been difficult for Hosea. It must have been but he did. And in doing so, he sends a message to all of Israel that says, even though you've been unfaithful, even though you have done murder, even though you are covered in the blood of the righteous, even though you have abandoned and rejected me again and again, I will pay the price for you. He sends that message to Israel and he sent that message to his own children to say, I know what your mom's done. I know, and I know you're probably angry with her. You're probably very upset with your mom, but I love her enough to give her grace. I love her enough to give her forgiveness. I love her enough to let go of my bitterness and my judgment, and I love her enough to stop telling that story and to start telling the story of a love that's redeeming to forgiveness. Can you imagine what your situation would be like and this isn't all of us, but I know it's some of us. What would it be like if we let go of the bitterness? What would it be like if we let go of, of the anger and of the frustration, if we just let it go and said, I'm going to choose to love enough to forgive. I'm going to let the grace, the grace that God has given me, the grace that flows through me out of the outpouring, out of the overflow of His love, I'm going to let that grace cover over their sin. I'm going to let that grace cover over the ways that they've hurt me. I'm going to let that grace cover over that. Can you imagine telling your children, listen, I forgive. I forgive that, that woman that sued me and cost me my retirement. Can you imagine telling them, I'm going to forgive, I'm going to forgive that, that man that rear-ended me and broke my, broke my back and I've been disabled for years because of him. I forgive him. I'm going to forgive, I'm going to forgive that drunk driver that, that killed my cousin. I'm going to forgive him. I'm going to forgive him, even though he doesn't deserve it. I need to forgive him, so I'm going to forgive. I'm going to let it go. Imagine the surprise on your spouse's face when you go in and say, I'm going to forgive our next-door neighbor that keeps running over my sprinkler head, and I'm just going to replace it time after time after time because I can't love my neighbor and be bitter towards them. Can you, can you imagine what it would be like not only if you gave that sort of forgiveness, 
But if you received that sort of forgiveness, oh, wouldn't it be sweet? Wouldn't it be wonderful to know that the people that, that we've wronged, that we've upset, love us that much? I hope and I pray that we can be people who are as quick to forgive as we have been forgiven, that, that the amount of grace that we can show our family, that we can show our community, our church, our, our city, our world, that we can show so much grace that it will overcome all of the anger, all of the bitterness, everything that's come before it, and that we would allow people to live in a state of grace when it comes to our relationship with each other because that is that's where we live when it comes to the God that we have sinned against. This morning, as I've described the stumbling block of the cross, I've described the ways that we have been forgiven for a multitude of sins. Some of you may, have said, may say, you know what, I've, I've never felt forgiven that way, not from a person and not from a God. This morning can be the opportunity that you need. This morning, you have the opportunity because that forgiveness, that forgiveness is right here today. This is, this is a, an opportunity to accept that sort of forgiveness. The person that you're upset with or that's upset with you, most likely they're not in the room. They're not. You'll have to deal with that outside. But I can tell you this, that your greatest transgression, your greatest act of rebellion is not against a neighbor or a friend. It's against your holy God. And today you have the opportunity to set that straight with him. And I hope that you will. Let's pray together. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. For this day, we thank you that although you are a holy, righteous God, we thank you that even though you are, are just, that you are gracious, we thank you that you could look beyond our sin to see our need for Jesus. We thank you for sending, for making that sacrifice. I thank you for, for the example that you've given us of love and forgiveness in Hosea. And I pray, Lord, that that we could forgive like that. I pray that we could reach inside of ourselves and look at the state of our heart and say, I don't want this bitterness inside of me anymore. I don't want this anger inside of me anymore. I, I want to let it go. And so Lord, I pray that you would help us to grow in grace, not in the grace that we've received, but in the grace that we allow to flow through us. We ask that your grace, that your mercy, that your kindness would flow through us and that it would erase the vestiges of, of malice, of hatred, of despair, that it would wash all of that away, that it would make us clean. Lord, if there's any here who maybe has never known that sort of grace, that has never been forgiven that way, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation, that today might be the day that they would say, today I've been forgiven by God. I've been forgiven wholly and completely. If there's any here, Lord, that, that needs to be forgiven like that today, I pray that your spirit would move in their heart today, that they would be convinced of, of the love and the kindness, the compassion that you are ready to show them by, for the, by the forgiveness that you give. I pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.